Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout this month, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Chronic pruritus is so severe that it causes a patient to scratch through her own skull. How can an itch be so unrelenting, and what conditions cause such severe pruritus? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg. Joining us to discuss the persistence of chronic itch is Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Anne Louise. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you. I have an article about a patient. It was from The New Yorker that you were involved with. Tell us about this. This was a patient of yours. Where did you first discuss this case? Well, there's actually two patients of mine that were interviewed for that article. I first became interested in this topic a long time ago when I was at Johns Hopkins, so more than a decade ago. And I remember standing in the hallway with a patient who pointed to her face and was complaining to me that itch was her major problem after shingles, and she showed me that she had scratched off her eyebrow. And I took note of this. I thought this was unusual, and I said, you know, I need to write about this. But it was one of these things that was on the back burner until I met a patient with such an extraordinary history that I realized that the time had come to publish her case and make the medical profession more aware of this problem. In a nutshell, can you give us the details of this case? Because it was pretty astounding to me to read it. Fortunately, I had taken a photo of that patient. I carry a camera with me, as many dermatologists do as well. And I think the photos were important because without it, it really sounded hard to believe. But in brief, this woman whom I still see was in her late 30s and her only known health problem is that she was HIV positive because of drug use in her younger years. At the time I met her, she was abstinent and doing well in a treatment program. She developed shingles about a year before I met her. It was in the second most common location for shingles, which is above one eye, in the territory of the first division of the trigeminal nerve, so a very common site. And the shingles was pretty typical, nothing unusual about it, and it did go away. The pain from the shingles went away, but what she was left with was absolutely terrible, unremitting itch. And because of that itch, she often found herself scratching at her forehead, even though her doctor had told her not to do so. And what happened is during the year before she met me, she gradually and really unintentionally created such a severe injury on her forehead that she came to the Mass General Emergency Room with complaints, neurological complaints, fever and weakness on half of her body and signs of increased intracranial pressure, headache, I believe some stomach ache. And when she presented to the emergency room, they saw that she had, in fact, scratched all the way through her skull and into her brain. And at the time she came to the emergency room, in addition to that severe wound, she also had an epidural abscess. And so she had a large fluid collection under her skull 
that was pressing on her brain and giving her the signs of increased intracranial pressure. Fortunately, this is the exception. I don't see these patients itching in my derm practice. But let's take a step back. I mean, it's an, an astounding presentation. Let's go back to itch because until I'd been reading recently, your material and others, I was always of the mind, as, as were a lot of older doctors, that itching was just a lower threshold of, on the pain nerve and that by scratching you block that out. But this is not true. Is that correct? Yes, you are touching on a major change in the itch field in the last 10 years or so. As you say, it used to be thought that itch was just low-level pain, low-level firing of pain neurons. But what happened is the first finding came from one of the very good German neurophysiologic laboratories where they characterized a subset of neurons that responded to itch but not to pain. And these end organs that do this are pretty spread out throughout the skin. They're, they're kind of different, aren't they? Well, they're a subset of C-fibers. C-fibers are the thin, unmyelinated fibers that convey pain sensation. So they might look the same when you looked at them pathologically, but when you look at their electrophysiologic properties and the molecular details, they are a different subset, and most of them do not respond to pain. So what conditions were thought to be causing your patient's itch before the neurological diagnosis was made? I mean, would people think she was just nuts? Absolutely. And so the diagnosis was trichotillomania, which is a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder in which patients pull at their own hair and end up sometimes giving themselves bald spots. And in fact, she had been sent to a psychiatrist and she had been treated with several different medications for this, but that's mostly what had been done. Yeah, mostly patients in trichotillomania in my practice, they really don't rub themselves bald. They just break the hairs off. It's kind of diagnostic that you could, you could make that distinction. But she was going further than that. How did she get through her skin and her skull with just her normal nails? That fascinates me. Well, I, again, I don't remember every detail because this was some time ago, but I think that she, in addition to her nails, used other objects as well. But nothing, you know, no pickaxes or anything such as that. When she was going through her skull, were her pain receptors unresponsive, or what was happening here? Well, thanks, Michael, for bringing that up, because that's the other half of the equation, is that in order for this disastrous scenario to play out, and she is not the only patient I've seen with this kind of problem, you have to have not only unremitting itch, but you also have to have loss of pain sensation. Because in normal itch, the kind that dermatologists see every day where there's a reason for itch, you scratch and the scratching temporarily suppresses the itch and then becomes painful. And when that scratching begins to feel painful, you, you know, you just stop it of your own accord. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, and joining me to discuss the persistence of chronic itch is Dr. Anne-Louise Oaklander, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So let's get back to the, the itching and, and the, the pain here. So in her case, there was no pain receptor? Yes, and that's really the key. And those are the people who have to be monitored closely for this kind of self-destruction. So the issue is not that she was a psychiatric patient, because in fact she was not. She's a very lucid woman. But the issue is that when she scratched that intractable itch, she never felt the pain that you or I would feel and that would make us stop scratching 
because her nerve damage was so severe from her shingles. So I studied this patient with some laboratory techniques, and we showed that she had lost virtually all sensation in that shingles-affected area of skin. And also, when we performed skin biopsies and immunolabeled them to reveal the nociceptive and itch nerve fibers within, we found that they were 97% gone. So that's why she felt no pain. And because she felt no pain from her scratching, she did not get the normal cues to stop that you or I would. And so she struggled with this and succumbed to self-injury. Are there a lot of patients like this? There are not a lot of patients who have as severe injuries as she did. Paradoxically, the injury that she gave herself, injuring the frontal lobe of her brain, made her only more likely to do this because the frontal part of the brain is where we have impulse control. And she ended up with quite severe brain damage, And but part of her brain damage was being less able to control her impulses. However, she's not the only patient who has this. And at the time I was seeing her, I was contacted about another patient who had post-herpetic pruritus or post-herpetic itch on his neck. And he had scratched so deeply that he had exposed the great vessels in his neck, his carotid and his jugular. And the staff in the hospital were terrified that he was going to actually tear into those vessels and bleed out in front of them. So it's a rare scenario, but not unique. It's something we should watch. Is there any research being done to treat this? Unfortunately, there's been very little awareness of neurological itch as a problem. And I have not seen any controlled trials ever of treatment for postherpetic itch or any kind of neuropathic itch. In fact, as you mentioned, most health professionals have never even heard of this. I'm hoping that with the attention that this case has garnered to motivate people who perform clinical trials to consider including itch as an endpoint in their trials so that we can learn something about what, what medications are or are not effective. Okay, if I can change the subject here for one second. In the New Yorker article, there was something I found fascinating, and that was about the fact that our assumption has been that our sensory data that we receive from our eyes, ears, nose, and fingers contain all the information we need for perception. But this is not true. Is that correct? Absolutely. That is correct. And we know that when the brain is deprived of sensory input, it gives rise to all sorts of sensations that don't have a basis in reality. So patients who are losing vision, for instance, very often have visual hallucinations. Patients who are going deaf may have tinnitus or ringing in the ears. Most people are familiar with that. And it's quite possible, although we don't know yet for certain, that this patient's itch perceptions were actually generated by her brain because of the severe neuronal loss. Right, and that's the point I was trying to get to. And the same thing with phantom limbs, that people have, we're, we're pretty familiar with phantom limbs, most of us who went to medical school, but the fascinating thing to me was that the perception of what's out there in the world is not necessarily coming from what you see, feel, smell, or taste, that your brain fills it in from memory. Absolutely. That's a little bit scary to think of our perception of reality as being 
a great part of more of the memory of our brain than what we're actually experiencing. Can you comment more about that for our listeners? Because I found that to be fascinating. And I'm you know, a bright guy, but I did not realize that. Tell us more about the pathways in the brain and what you've learned. Well, I'd be delighted because that's my area of research, but I feel I owe it to your listeners to mention what has been effective in treating this kind of syndrome. And so I learned from this woman and from other patients with neuropathic itch that what seems to be most effective actually are the local anesthetics that block neural transmission. And so when that patient was in the hospital and she had a prolonged hospital course because of her continued scratching, we ended up putting an angiocath in her forehead and pumping it up with bupivacaine several times a day. And that quieted her itch enough to let some healing take place. As an outpatient, she put a lidoderm patch over that itchy area and got partial relief from it. Other drugs that block sodium channels, such as carbamazepine or dilantin, or even systemically administered local anesthetics, such as given subcutaneously, or mexilatine, which is a lidocaine analog that can be taken by mouth, have helped other patients. One last thing before we move on to the pathophysiology is not to underestimate the importance of a physical barrier, because it's come out in recent years that we're not as much in control of our actions as we assume we are, and scratching in particular has been shown to be largely unconscious. So if you're giving a lecture and you look around the audience, you'll see that several people in the room will be scratching, often without even knowing it. And furthermore, video studies of people who are sleeping have shown that a lot of scratching actually goes on in your sleep when you really have no control over it. So what helped this patient a lot was wearing a helmet that the neurosurgeons had given her to cover her skull defect. And that way, when her hand unconsciously crept up to this wound, the helmet prevented her from doing any harm. And very often then when she thought about it, she said, oh, I'm scratching. I don't want to do that. She was able to stop. I would like to thank my guest from Harvard Medical School, Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander. We've been speaking about the persistence of chronic itch. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry. For downloadable podcasts of all the programs in this series, go to ReachMD.com and choose the series Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry.